The following was recorded by John Loth and is intended for educational purposes. This recording is not to be sold or distributed for sale. If you wish to support the work and publishing of these recordings, please visit the John Loth Patreon page. If you come across these recordings anywhere else without my expressed support and find that they are requesting donations for presenting this work to you, you will not be supporting the creator by doing so. This is just a friendly warning to anyone who may fall prey to predatory practices I have come across recently. The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 7 A Trans-Eurasian Security System The stability of Eurasia's geopolitical pluralism, precluding the appearance of a single dominant power, would be enhanced by the eventual emergence, perhaps sometime early in the next century, of a Trans-Eurasian Security System, or TESS. Such a transcontinental security agreement should embrace an expanded NATO, connected by a cooperative charter with Russia and China, as well as Japan, which would still be connected to the United States by the Bilateral Security Treaty. But to get there, NATO must first expand while engaging Russia in a larger regional framework of security cooperation. In addition, the Americans and Japanese must closely consult and collaborate in setting in motion a triangular political security dialogue in the Far East that engages China. Three-way American-Japanese-Chinese security talks could eventually involve more Asian participants and later lead to a dialogue between them and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. In turn, such a dialogue could pave the way for a series of conferences by all European and Asian states, thereby beginning the process of institutionalizing a transcontinental security system. In time, a more formal structure could begin to take shape, prompting the emergence of a trans-Eurasian security system that for the first time would span the entire continent. The shaping of that system, defining its substance and then institutionalizing it, could become the major architectural initiative of the next decade, once the policies outlined earlier have created the necessary preconditions. Such a broad transcontinental security framework could also contain a standing security committee, composed of the major Eurasian entities, in order to enhance the Trans-Eurasian Security System's ability to promote effective cooperation on issues critical to global stability. America, Europe, China, Japan, a confederated Russia, and India, as well as perhaps some other countries, might serve together as the core of such a more structured transcontinental system. The eventual emergence of a Trans-Eurasian Security System could gradually relieve America of some of its burdens, even while perpetuating its decisive role as Eurasia's stabilizer and arbitrator. The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 7 Beyond the Last Global Superpower In the long run, global politics are bound to become increasingly uncongenial to the concentration of hegemonic power in the hands of a single state. Hence, America is not only the first, as well as the only, truly global superpower, but it is also likely to be the very last. 
That is not only because nation-states are gradually becoming increasingly permeable, but also because knowledge as power is becoming more diffuse, more shared, and less constrained by national boundaries. Economic power is also likely to become more dispersed. In the years to come, no single power is likely to reach the level of 30% or so of the world's GDP that America sustained throughout much of this century, not to speak of the 50% at which it crested in 1945. Some estimates suggest that by the end of this decade, America will still account for about 20% of global GDP, declining perhaps to about 10 to 15% by 2020 as other powers, Europe, China, Japan, increase their relative share to more or less the American level. But global economic preponderance by a single entity of the sort that America attained in the course of this century is unlikely, and that has obviously far-reaching military and political implications. Moreover, the very multinational and exceptional character of American society has made it easier for America to universalize its hegemony without letting it appear to be a strictly national one. For example, an effort by China to seek global primacy would inevitably be viewed by others as an attempt to impose a national hegemony. To put it very simply, anyone can become an American, but only a Chinese can be Chinese and that places an additional and significant barrier in the way of any essentially national global hegemony. Accordingly, once American leadership begins to fade, America's current global predominance is unlikely to be replicated by any single state. Thus, the key question for the future is, what will America bequeath to the world as the enduring legacy of its primacy? The answer depends in part on how long that primacy lasts and on how energetically America shapes a framework of key power partnerships that over time can be more formally institutionalized. In fact, the window of historical opportunity for America's constructive exploitation of its global power could prove to be relatively brief for both domestic and external reasons. A genuinely populist democracy has never before attained international supremacy. The pursuit of power, and especially the economic costs and human sacrifice that the exercise of such power often requires, are not generally congenial to democratic instincts. Democratization is inimical to imperial mobilization. Indeed, the critical uncertainty regarding the future may well be whether America, might become the first superpower unable or unwilling to wield its power. Might it become an impotent global power? Public opinion polls suggest that only a small minority, 13%, of Americans favor the proposition that, as the sole remaining superpower, the United States should continue to be the preeminent world leader in solving international problems. An overwhelming majority, 74%, prefer that America do its fair share in efforts to solve international problems together with other countries. Moreover, as America becomes an increasingly multicultural society, it may find it more difficult to fashion a consensus on foreign policy issues, 
except in the circumstances of a truly massive and widely perceived direct external threat. Such a consensus generally existed throughout World War II and even during the Cold War. It was rooted, however, not only in deeply shared democratic values, which the public sensed were being threatened, but also in a cultural and ethnic affinity for the predominantly European victims of hostile totalitarianisms. In the absence of a comparable external challenge, American society may find it much more difficult to reach agreement regarding foreign policies that cannot be directly related to central beliefs and widely shared cultural ethnic sympathies, and that still require an enduring and sometimes costly imperial engagement. If anything, two extremely varying views on the implications of America's historic victory in the Cold War are likely to be politically more appealing. On the one hand, the view that the end of the Cold War justifies a significant reduction in America's global engagement, irrespective of the consequences for America's global standing, and, on the other, the perception that the time has come for genuine international multilateralism, to which America should even yield some of its sovereignty. Both extremes command the loyalty of committed constituencies. More generally, cultural change in America may also be uncongenial to the sustained exercise abroad of genuinely imperial power. That exercise requires a high degree of doctrinal motivation, intellectual commitment, and patriotic gratification. Yet the dominant culture of the country has become increasingly fixated on mass entertainment that has been heavily dominated by personally hedonistic and socially escapist themes. The cumulative effect has made it increasingly difficult to mobilize the needed political consensus on behalf of sustained and also occasionally costly American leadership abroad. Mass communications have been playing a particularly important role in that regard, generating a strong revulsion against any selective use of force that entails even low levels of casualties. In addition, both America and Western Europe have been finding it difficult to cope with the cultural consequences of social hedonism and the dramatic decline in the centrality of religious-based values in society. The parallels with the decline of the imperial systems summarized in Chapter 1 are striking in that respect. The resulting cultural crisis has been compounded by the spread of drugs and, especially in America, by its linkage to the racial issue. Lastly, the rate of economic growth is no longer able to keep up with growing material expectations, with the latter stimulated by a culture that places a premium on consumption. It is no exaggeration to state that a sense of historical anxiety, perhaps even of pessimism, is becoming palpable in the more articulate sectors of Western society. Almost half a century ago, a noted historian, Hans Kohn, having observed the tragic experience of two world wars and the debilitating consequences of the totalitarian challenge, worried that the West may have become fatigued and exhausted. Indeed, he feared that, quote, 20th century man has become less confident than his 19th century ancestor was. He has witnessed the dark powers of history in his own experience. 
Things which seemed to belong to the past have reappeared. Fanatical faith, infallible leaders, slavery and massacres, the uprooting of whole populations, ruthlessness and barbarism. Closed quote. That lack of confidence has been intensified by widespread disappointment with the consequences of the end of the Cold War. Instead of a new world order based on consensus and harmony, things which seemed to belong to the past have all of a sudden become the future. Although ethnic national conflicts may no longer pose the risk of a central war, they do threaten the peace in significant parts of the globe. Thus, war is not likely to become obsolete for some time to come. With the more endowed nations constrained by their own higher technological by their own higher technological capacity for self-destruction as well as by self-interest, war may have become a luxury that only the poor peoples of this world can afford. In the foreseeable future, the impoverished two-thirds of humanity may not be motivated by the restraint of the privileged. It is also noteworthy that international conflicts and acts of terrorism have so far been remarkably devoid of any use of the weapons of mass destruction. How long that self-restraint may hold is inherently unpredictable, but the increasing availability, not only to states, but also to organized groups, of the means to inflict massive casualties by the use of nuclear or bacteriological weapons, also inevitably increases the probability of their employment. In brief, America as the world's premier power does face a narrow window of historical opportunity. The present moment of relative global peace may be short-lived. This prospect underlies the urgent need for an American engagement in the world that is deliberately focused on the enhancement of international geopolitical stability and that is capable of reviving in the West a sense of historical optimism. That optimism requires the demonstrated capacity to deal simultaneously with internal, social, and external geopolitical challenges. However, the rekindling of Western optimism and the universalism of the West's values are not exclusively dependent on America and Europe. Japan and India demonstrate that the notions of human rights and the centrality of the democratic experiment can be valid in Asian settings as well both in highly developed ones and in those that are still only developing. The continued democratic success of Japan and India is, therefore, also of enormous importance in sustaining a more confident perspective regarding the future political shape of the globe. Indeed, their experience, as well as that of South Korea and Taiwan, suggests that China's continued economic growth coupled with pressures from outside for change generated by greater international inclusion, might perhaps also lead to the progressive democratization of the Chinese system. Meeting these challenges is America's burden as well as its unique responsibility. Given the reality of American democracy, an effective response will require generating a public understanding of the continuing importance of American power in shaping a widening framework of stable, geopolitical cooperation, one that simultaneously averts global anarchy and successfully defers the emergence of a new power challenge. These two goals 
averting global anarchy, and impeding the emergence of a power rival, are inseparable from the longer-range definition of the purpose of America's global engagement, namely, that of forging an enduring framework of global geopolitical cooperation. Unfortunately, to date, efforts to spell out a new central and worldwide objective for the United States in the wake of the termination of the Cold War have been one-dimensional. They have failed to link the need to improve the human condition with the imperative of preserving the centrality of American power in world affairs. Several such recent attempts can be identified. During the first two years of the Clinton administration, the advocacy of assertive multilateralism did not sufficiently take into account the basic realities of contemporary power. Later on, the alternative emphasis on the notion that America should focus on global, democratic enlargement did not adequately take into account the continuing importance to America of maintaining global stability, or even of promoting some expedient, but regrettably not democratic, power relationships as with China. As the central U.S. priority, more narrowly focused appeals have been even less satisfactory, such as those concentrating on the elimination of prevailing injustice in the global distribution of income, on shaping a special, mature strategic partnership with Russia, or on containing weapons proliferation. Other alternatives, that America should concentrate on safeguarding the environment, or, more narrowly, on combating local wars, have also tended to ignore the central realities of global power. As a result, none of the foregoing formulations have fully addressed the need to create minimal global geopolitical stability as the essential foundation for the simultaneous protraction of American hegemony and the effective aversion of international anarchy. In brief, the U.S. policy goal must be unapologetically twofold, to perpetuate America's own dominant position for at least a generation, and preferably longer still, and to create a geopolitical framework that can absorb the inevitable shocks and strains of social-political change, while evolving into the geopolitical core of shared responsibility for peaceful global management. A prolonged phase of gradually expanding cooperation with key Eurasian partners, both stimulated and arbitrated by America, can also help to foster the preconditions for an eventual upgrading of the existing and increasingly antiquated UN structures. A new distribution of responsibilities and privileges can then take into account the changed realities of global power, so drastically different from those of 1945. These efforts will have the added historical advantage of benefiting from the new web of global linkages that is growing exponentially outside the more traditional nation-state system. That web, woven by multinational corporations, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, with many of them transnational in character, and scientific communities and reinforced by the Internet, already creates an informal global system that is inherently congenial to more institutionalized and inclusive global cooperation. In the course of the next several decades, a functioning structure of global cooperation based on geopolitical realities could thus emerge 
and gradually assumed the mantle of the world's current regent, which has for the time being assumed the burden of responsibility for world stability and peace. Geostrategic success, in that case, would represent a fitting legacy of America's role as the first, only, and last truly global superpower. End of Chapter 7 End of the Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Read by John Loth.